New Year, everybody. Welcome to another episode, yet another episode, but the first episode of 2021. Uh, You're going to die the podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's nice to be here in this strange window of time after Christmas and New Year's and holidays and uh, just that that wonderful cap on the end of a lot of year. You're feeling like you have to start fresh and make resolutions and I don't know, maybe you're not feeling that way. I'm not, actually. There's things I'm feeling ready to get into, but there's also just the usual... I don't know what's next or how to do it. This morning, it was so nice to wake up to the rain. And I really was hoping, planning on recording this introduction to today's episode. And just hoping in the background it would be just drippy and pitter-pattery. But it absolutely cleared up. I have real sadness about rain stopping lately. It doesn't rain near as much as I'd like it to, but also the way rain makes me feel. Rain makes me feel it matches my most my insides, and it makes the world smaller like nighttime, and so then maybe less threatening or maybe more manageable or relatable. I'm not totally sure, but regardless, the rain has stopped, but the rain hasn't stopped in my heart. I'm still, I'm still, I'm still pitter-pattering in there. There is, I think, a cloud inside there, a little cartoon cloud in my heart. It's not filling the heart. It's just got a special place in my heart. And I'm glad to bring it here to be with all of you. But let's get into this episode. I don't have a lot to say. The interview really does most the same for itself. I have been connected to Sarah Raimi for years, but have never met her, and we've never officially became friends. So I'll tell you one thing that I'm very happy about doing this podcast is making friends. And so I would say now I can now I can call Sarah a friend of mine, and I love that we get to use an interview to really quickly do that because like most conversations I hope I have in life, it just kind of cuts to the chase, to the deepest parts, past all the, what do you do? How do you spell your name? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. People don't ask that. But you know, those those intro things, the shallow parts. I mean, some people talk that way all the time and I'm inclined not to. And so the interview as a introduction, really the first time Sarah and I talked, It was a really favorite way to become connected and become friends. We've been kind of connected peripherally for a long time. And that's just because she lived in San Francisco and is a musician. Wolf Larson, I say her as a musician, has connected her to the scene. And in the time she was here in San Francisco to people that I'm connected to because of the events I've been doing for 10 years, And I know her sister because of the events and many of her good friends who she's worked with on projects. And so it it feels like a long time coming. And luckily, Nick Jaina is close friends with Sarah. And so because of all these reasons, it made perfect sense to get to have this time with her and share it with you. 
Sarah writes in this book about battling with the medical establishment for clarity and acknowledgement about her illness, which she came to understand by the name myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or the acronyms MECFS. This covers a lot of different illnesses that all get the same skeptical response from doctors. Now, one other reason why I really love this new medium for You're Going to Die and for me to be in is because of what it connects me to and the kind of listening it asks of me. And the real fact of the matter is that I probably would have never read the lady's handbook for her mysterious illness. That's not because I'm not down to read something that's called the lady's handbook. It's just likely with all the other things I'm reading that maybe I wouldn't wouldn't get there. And so I was able to get a copy of this book and read it in the week leading up to our interview. And I want to just acknowledge the power of what it means to let ourselves go into other experiences and other worlds that we're just not used to, to get the chance to read Sarah's words about what she's lived through was really powerful for me. And I will tell you that I don't have a lot of resolutions in the new year, but one is a real commitment to less sugar and less processed food. And I can tell you for sure it's connected to reading this book. So there's also that, okay, I'm learning about another perspective, something I don't maybe understand and haven't lived through. And actually it's applicable to my life. Not a lot of specifics to add because she just does a better job of it in the interview than I will do now. But I do want you to know that it was really hard to imagine and have felt my own fear around for years. The time when we get um, to in our lives where an ailment or something about our health, an illness is a part of our being alive and it is inevitable, whether it is the last stretch of your being alive, even if it is only the last moments of your being alive, there is something you will live with until you die. And that's not to say Sarah hasn't done plenty of healing and can and still will do a lot of healing, but there's an experience she has had so far that you'll hear today that is that chronic category. And I feel really strongly that there's potential there to maybe even be in dying long before you do because the thing you're living through is as big as it or somehow runs deeper into who you are and through your whole lifetime that it's as significant and likely eventually inevitably informing how we are with letting go and grief and mortality and all the things. And so I felt very humbled to be able to even try to get all these imaginings to Sarah and to this conversation with her about what she's been through. And so I want to say thank you to Sarah. Deep gratitude for being down to share about your book. And I also want to acknowledge that this book came out during COVID-19 and the pandemic hitting us globally. And so there's a way that it got swallowed up by that occurrence. And so I'm really grateful and proud then also to be able to share with you, the listener, this book, because I think it will grow in its accessibility like it was swallowed and overshadowed by, strangely enough, 
uh, a global illness. And Sarah shared with me about what that was for her, knowing this book was getting released and suddenly having, again, her illness be completely blacked out by something else. And so it means a lot to have had this conversation with her and, and to know that like it's not as much as it deserves getting it into this podcast and, and to you, the listener, but that it's the least I can do and I'm proud to do it and it matters. And so I'm, I'm real glad you're here and that we're in your ear today. I hope you enjoy this episode with Sarah Ramey talking about her life and what she's lived through and her book, The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. When you're sick, that's pretty common that you just lose a lot. You lose friends, you lose relationships, you you lose a lot. And so I, I do think that that's, that's there in a lot of the songs, even if they're not, you know, directly about my experience uh, of being, you know, homebound. I mean, my first question in my my too long list of things I wanted to talk to you about was just for you to speak to that. The you mm-hmm. know, I work with cancer patients. I do a lot of workshops through uh, UCSF um, yeah. writing workshops, and especially during the nine months when we moved everything online, our workshops really kind of flourished mm-hmm. and people being able to attend them in a way they weren't before, which which got us present to the fact that we probably should have been doing them all along yes. for reasons that you've already pointed to. But one major conversation ongoing, especially in the first six months, was the processing of these patients in the way you're describing, which is we I've been living this for years and years and years. Yeah. Well, especially just because there's this real sadness to here, everybody, I understand being, you know, that this is like the worst year of a lot of people's lives and that it, yeah, it's really hard to be stuck in your home and not see all of your friends and be cut off and be so worried about your job, et cetera, all those things. It's just so hard to know that all those people who are, who have every right to complain, I think, um, that, that they will get to return to their lives and the rest of us won't and it will just continue this way Mm. and and that's there is like a us i've been writing i'm working on an essay i've been trying to uh that's about it's like a a farewell letter as as everybody goes back to Mm. their lives because there has been this sense of like i've actually felt the least alone during this time because everybody's using zoom now and everybody's doing all of these things to connect where i really could have used that um, when I was, I mean, really during this whole whole time, but it, it didn't even occur to me or, or to my friends to kind of set up a lot of the, you know, support structures that, that people mm-hmm. have come up with during this time. And so as everybody goes back, I, I, I keep trying to remind people, like, please be sure to remember how difficult this was for you when you have other people people in your lives that have a chronic illness or a disability who it's that's what their life experience is like they they will be going through this for the rest of their lives and so just like you needed that support and you needed to be able to complain and you needed you were afraid like and didn't need somebody to tell you to look on the bright side you know Mm -hmm. like you 
please keep this in mind when you go mm-hmm. back to your life. And because everybody usually has a friend like me, but most people really don't know how to offer them support. And I really feel like one way in for people to try and think about it is like, well, what did you need during this time? Because it's not hugely, hugely different. I mean, it's different, but it's it's not hugely different. Um, I appreciate that. <clears throat> Thank you for putting words to that. All my words don't match what this has been like for you to like complete i know the amount of work and effort and emotion and thought and um you know you want to have it matched and balanced by how it's received and what it means for others in the world you wrote this even more than i'm going to get my biography out there you know my autobiography is going to be really cool and people will really like it. it's like you know you really feel in your writing that you are doing this as a task to offer something to you know this demographic this this demographic of people with mysterious illness and it was valuable to me but but knowing and feeling that in your writing of course it would be so so hard to have it hit right in and and just yes of course the fact (laughs) that it's that week of covid (laughs) just like even in a bad year like that was genuinely (laughs) the worst time Uh, and so i am still recovering from that but but it is Part of it, though, really was it's not just like, oh, my story didn't get witnessed in the way that I wanted it to, Mm. is that so much of that like publicity, like so much of that, like everything that I had prepared for with like media training was about talking about these illnesses, not really talking about my story, but really platforming Mm -hmm. the illnesses to say like, this is wrong. The way that we are, the way that doctors and, and friends and family treat these illnesses is really really bad and it it needs to stop and it's been interesting because as i mentioned before with post-covid or long haulers like they are now all reporting exactly the same thing that they're being you know treated like it's a very serious illness when they have acute covid and then when afterwards you know they still feel awful they still have this horrible brain fog their muscles hurt they're incredibly tired all the time you know the doctors just tell them you know don't worry about it. It'll go away. Or yeah, it's you survived the thing. Yeah, you don't. You talk about that. It's this idea that like, well, you didn't die. Yeah, you didn't die, and so it doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. it, which is, you know, <laughs> it's interesting. The doctors that I know that take care of patients like this, not not exclusively, but overwhelmingly, are <laughs> doctors who themselves have experienced it because once. Once you experience it, you cannot have that person. You, you don't have the perspective of like, oh, well, this is such a non- a silly little thing that's just like a minor complaint. And let's focus on real illness over here. Like if you've experienced it yourself, you do not think that at all. It's not possible to because it's, it's horrible. Mm. <laughs> and so it's interesting to me to see like this is happening all over again. Although there is there is a change because now it's happening to a group of people that because COVID, like the, the world is watching COVID, there's so much more um, publicity of the long haulers and of post-COVID syndrome. Mm. And so I think that that's actually, that has a sort of boomerang effect back on the rest of the MACFS community. And that you like- see, You feel you're seeing that? You, you definitely are. Mm. I think I think it's, it's a little bit insular to the community itself, but you can see, there's just so many more articles being written. There's so many more, like there's a friend wow. of mine that 
works at the Atlantic, Ed Young, he writes, uh, he's written about this and he writes, when he writes about MECFS, he doesn't say anything like, you know, the contested illness, uh, MECFS. He just says MECFS, a disease that has long been mistreated in the medical system, yeah. you know, which is, that is the correct way to write mm-hmm. about these problems. It's very different from like, well, on the one hand, some people say it exists. And on the other hand, some people don't. And I'll leave it to you, reader, who has no information and no way <laughs> to tell which is the truth, you know, to, to, to leave it up to you. And that's how mm. most journalists usually write about it. And so it's been interesting to see this real sea change in the, in the mainstream media. It's, it, it, it makes, it gives me hope. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I see why you say that, but I also think not, you know, I mean, it, it is, it's the connection will strengthen or is strong there. And so I do wonder over the next year or two, something like this gift to a community that you happen to be a part of, you know, um, I wonder if it'll, it'll help it, like you said, slow burn into those lives and um, really become something that I hope is like a touchstone for somebody who just needs to hear, like you describe someone who knows and gets it and can like say it and probably have people read this book for the first time that they've never had anyone in their life be able yeah. to put words to this experience, this yeah. medical journey like you have. Yeah, no, that that when I, you know, talk about like you know, not not focusing on expectations, but like focusing on what's actually happening. I've gotten so many letters from just readers who mm. have sent me a letter. And it's it's really exactly what you just said, which is like, I thought that I was the only person that's ever experienced any of this. And like, I cannot believe that I'm not the only one. And and there's just this like relief of, it, which I remember the first time I write about it in the book of the first time that I met somebody like me. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I couldn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could not believe it. And then I met somebody else who's describing the exact same thing. And I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> I yeah. met them both. <laughs> and it, uh, and then and of course it's, it's this incredibly widespread phenomenon. It's just, I think it's the, invisibility of it like in terms of the symptoms pain and fatigue are those are invisible for the most part and but also the shame once something has become stigmatized like you don't talk about it there's a Mm. really long time where i didn't talk about it at all in your offering you put this in your own words when i asked you like what do you want to talk about in this interview you you spend the most time talking about what it means to say the truth a version of that which is the power of negative thinking mm-hmm. and what i hear the power of negative thinking as is the power of being able to say what really is yes. and then on the other side of that have someone hear it fully and not no fixing yet no no like right. no medicine no like here's mm-hmm. the cure just being with it yeah well it's interesting because the, the power of negative thinking is really it's just the power of truth mm-hmm. and sometimes a lot of the time the truth is negative or it's ugly or it's painful or it's tough for somebody else to hear but that is not a reason not to say it, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's not obvious to a lot of people who are who really there is this sort of culture of toxic positivity where, you know, that idea that that you just have to always find the silver lining and always look on the bright side and just never, never, never say what is. And that is, I think, incredibly poisonous to you to have to be 
unable to say what's real. So the the story that I tell in the book, it's this very old story um, about the goddess Inanna, who's a Sumerian goddess. She's the queen of the sky, and she's the most powerful goddess. And um, her sister, uh, Ereshkigal, who's the queen of the underworld, she um, her husband dies. And so Inanna goes down, descends into the underworld to uh, go to the funeral. And importantly, this husband of the queen of darkness was a terrible husband. He beats her, he rapes her, he's, he's a horrible, horrible husband. Regardless, so Inanna starts descending. Oh, sorry, before she goes, she tells her priestess, you know, if I don't come back within three days, I need you to go to the sky gods and um, have them, you know, come get me because that means something bad has happened. So she goes down, 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 passes through the seven gates of hell, and she reaches the bottom to her sister, Ereshkigal. And Ereshkigal sees her, her bright, luminous, beautiful sister and is so enraged by her presence that she kills her and she hangs her up on a meat hook. So three days go by, and the priestess realizes that Inanna has not come back. So she heads off to the sky gods, and she pleads with them. She says, you must come quick. Something is wrong. Inanna has not come back. And all the sky gods, they're all male. They all laugh at her, and they're like, well, that's Inanna's fault. She went into hell. She shouldn't have done that. You know, anybody that goes down uh, can't come back. And um, and so uh, uh, the priestess then goes to uh, Enki, who's the god of water, who is sort of in these stories embodies more feminine elements. And the god of water says, I know just what to do. And so from underneath his fingernails, he scrapes the dirt out and he fashions these little creatures. Um, and he says, send these down through the gates and this will solve the problem. So, you know, the priestess looks at these little creatures. She's like, I don't know how this is going to work. <laughs> but she takes them to the <laughs> gates of hell. She sends them down, down and down. They fly down to hell. And as they get to the bottom, they see Inanna hanging on the meat hook, and they see Ereshkigal, who is still gnashing her teeth, and stomping, and, you know, pulling things off the walls, and still just raging, raging, raging. And the little creatures, they walk up to her, and they look right at her, and she says, oh, my pain. And the little creatures say to her, oh, your pain. <laughs> And she says, oh, my rage. And she stamps and rats, gnashes her teeth and pounds on the floor. And they say, oh, your rage. And she goes through this litany of her pain and her suffering. And the two little creatures, they mirror it all back to her. And slowly, 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 she stops raging and she calms down. And she finally comes to peace. And she is so grateful. She says, what can I give you? And they say, you can resurrect Inanna. <laughs> you can give us Inanna. And so as a gift to these little creatures, she resurrects Inanna, who goes flying back up into the upper world. And in the story, we learn that these two little creatures, they have a name. They are called the mourners. And in the story, what I take away from the story is Truly, this is the power of witness, the importance of witness, of mm -hmm. simply um, bearing witness to rage and pain and grief. This is, this is of course, the purpose of this show, <laughs> of your whole, that's everything that you do. You're like mm. chief, chief witness. <laughs> and, 
And the, just that, not fixing, not anything else. First, the first box <laughs> that has to be checked, not the, the last box or the middle box. The first box is bearing witness to what has actually happened, no matter what is there, no matter how ugly it is, and no matter how long it goes on for to, to let the person just tell the story of the the pain that they are in, that the psychological healing that comes from that is so um, real and so well documented and like I think so visceral. Like when you talk to people about this, they're like, oh, that's true. <laughs> that, that's like, it's so important. Hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying this episode. I am. I just wanted to pop in for a quick middle of the show break to see how you're doing. Uh, Hey, listen, if you're enjoying the episode and if you've made it this far, you're getting something out of it, probably. Would you do me a favor? It's super simple, super quick and easy. Just go into your little podcast app, whatever it might be, especially if it's Apple Podcasts. And click on the rating and reviewing option. Just, if you wouldn't mind, hit us with a few stars. You know, three to five would be really generous of you. And if you wouldn't mind especially taking the time to put a few words to your stars. Like, why does this podcast matter to you? And you can send that out into the world and know that it helps us. It actually supports the podcast. And another great way of supporting the podcast would be just to send this episode to somebody else that you know needs to hear it, especially this particular one with Sarah and what she knows in the way she knows it wisely. And then another way you can connect up is by going to our website. We are a 501c3 nonprofit with a lot of programming and events happening regularly. We have an online open mic that happens the third Thursday of every month. We have a hospice and music program, active, believe it or not. And we also have a prison program. You can find out more about what we're doing with that. And so there's a lot of ways you can deepen into this conversation around mortality and creativity. Uh, And we'd love to do it with you. So check out YG2D.com to connect up a little more. And there's even a little button on the website that says donate. And you can give a little bit because guess what? We still don't have a sponsor. I know it'll change eventually. I'm not even doing anything to get a sponsor other than talk about it every episode. But the way this podcast survives for now is on the funding we already have and by support coming from listeners like you. So click on donate and give us five bucks, 10 bucks, PayPal. You can Venmo us. You know, there's ways to give us the cash support and we gratefully welcome it. I have to tell you, I'm a little excited right now because I just listened to what you're just about to listen to. And I, I just couldn't even keep listening. I was so excited. I wanted to talk about it. I guess I wanted the podcast to have these moments where we just get to stop 
and be together in this weird way so I can just slow down and when I'm recording settle a bit and get present to the very precious singularly unique moment that is this and weird right that I'm talking and having that and I'm inviting you to have it too wherever you are in time and space to settle and feel your precious fragile body and being and the ways it senses and relates to the world through listening and feeling and smelling and all those things there's a way that I want the podcast to offer what the shows do, especially now I want that because we're not getting to do the live events as much and we try to do it with the online shows. It's different, but it can happen. And so why not the podcast too, which is like, what a strange, weird thing that you're alive and that I'm talking to you in your ear here. And this episode when I considered what this moment might be like, I thought about my daughter and when I'm sitting in the living room and she starts playing with her toys and making noises, I just drop everything. And without her noticing, making sure she doesn't, I just settle and listen. And it's the best meditation you're ever gonna find. Here's a little taste of it, coupled with another favorite way I like to drop into the moment, which is with the sound magic of Nick Jaina. Thanks, Nick, for putting thoughtful time into these podcasts. And thank you, listener, for showing up to hear it. I'm glad you're here. And I don't want to be anywhere else but in your ear right now.
that witness function, that is part of what doctors are supposed to do. And it is the thing, it's really in the case of this type of illness, but this is true of like all kinds of marginalized people who when they go to the doctor, they get dismissed. It's that the the bridge that is missing is the the bridge of witness of, of the person just not even valuing you enough to say, oh God, that sounds very difficult. Like, I'm so sorry to hear that you're going through this, even if they don't know what's wrong or how to help you or whatever. So many doctors, they all say to me the same thing. They're like, well, what do you want? I mean, I don't know how to fix this type of problem. Like, we didn't even take this seriously. So what, I don't understand what you're asking of me. I'm like, well, but you would never say that. Like, I'm sure there's other incurable illnesses that you deal with all the time. You would never say, well, I don't know how to fix this. So I'm going to tell you that it doesn't exist. (laughs) That's like a completely illogical, nonsensical, and cruel thing to say to somebody. But it's what happens sort of all the time with Mm -hmm. um, these problems or lots of different, so so many, it's not limited to the mystery illnesses. It's just sort of the universal experience of the mysteriously ill. I think your dad is a version of where it's possible. Mm-hmm. Your dad is close to it, of course, and and intimately, but mm-hmm. this is where it worked. This is where yeah. being heard worked. This is where letting fuck you slash like boundaries, yeah. you know, all the things, mm-hmm. speaking truth, negative thinking, all those things actually were effective. You know, your dad's letter at the end is like, major like physical relief to reach you know i I emailed you right after i finished (laughs) the book because i was like oh my god i'm crying because you got that yeah yeah i cried too when i got that email uh, it (laughs) it you know without i mean it doesn't really give anything away i mean basically my parents and i especially my dad and i really went on pretty much the journey that all of these doctors eventually are going to have to go on because it's not, you know, 20 years from now, we're not still going to be having this fight. Like they are going to have to come around because they're, they're wrong (laughs) and the patients are right. These are really real devastating illnesses and that they don't know enough about it is their own fault and they Mm -hmm. need to be brought along on this. But my dad, he came all the way around. <laughs> like he, 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 he came so far around that he started becoming like a doctor that other Womies, I call us women with mysterious illnesses, Womies, that they would seek him out because they knew that he would believe them and that he would treat them well and that he would help in, in the limited ways that he was able to do that. And, but I didn't know that until he sent me a letter telling me that, that he had like become a Womie doctor. Right. This was uh, news to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think really speaks to that um, changes is possible. I think often it really feels like that's not true. Just if you've seen, I've, in, I've interviewed so many people and we it's, it's very common for us to have seen like up north of 100, 150 doctors and none of them have treated you with kindness or compassion or even just like an ounce of belief, which really, it really can't be overstated like how psychologically damaging that is like it's one thing if one person treats you that way or two or three but like a hundred is i mean it's just it, it it's horrifying yeah, <laughs> yeah especially when like your health is on the line it's not it, it's like the most important thing and 
this person is treating you like it doesn't exist at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, my dad sort of dispositionally is like a, a skeptical person and like a, a doubter. Like he doesn't, you know, he wants to see the data and he, you know, doesn't like the sound of woo-woo stuff. And he's one of those people. And so a doctor. <laughs> and he uh, he um, was still kind of doing that to me like anytime I would talk to him about any of the research that I was looking at for these illnesses or for myself or for the book he was still kind of you know like I don't know still treating it with like some of it with like scorn and derision and stuff and I I what started having these conversations with him where I said dad you know all I want is for us to have a a good relationship like we he was like my best friend when I was a little kid and I was like I just want to get back to that place and I cannot get back to that place if you are treating me this way and I can't imagine that you're meaning to do this Uh and so we went through just so many like turns around the merry-go-round of like like over and over and over again like returning to this conversation but over time, and this is to his credit, he really changed and has become like the most empathetic person in my life, like bar none, like well, my, and my mom. And the, he, you know, and we'll call every day or every other day. It used to be we wouldn't talk for like months and months and months and months and months and ask, you know, how are you doing? I know the answer is not very well. That's fine. I want to hear it. I want to hear all of it. Tell me about the pain. Tell me. And it's like, what (laughs) like it's like such a just a i just feel so lucky but i the reason i share it is actually because from for me it was really difficult getting there because it meant returning to these very painful conversations where Mm. he was not giving me that and i just felt like so just so much pain that i could not connect to this deeply important person in my life and that we were still at odds on this like foundational part of my life. And, and and so just like being willing to have those painful conversations kind of over and over and over again. And then it it worked <laughs> was like a very important lesson for me in terms of like, I, I know that that doesn't always work, but I think it's really worth trying. <laughs> what I think you maybe don't spend a lot of time on and, and I'd love to hear you at least just say, well, it's, there's not much to say about that, but like the moments when you wanted to give up. Yeah. And I mean, give up as in like, maybe even consider taking your life. I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, not maybe for sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot here. You know, something I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is why there is such a big gulf between, um, terminal illness, the way that we fund and sort of support socially and sort of care for terminal illness and illnesses like these where um, on the severe end of the spectrum of this type of illness, the most common thing that you hear from people is that that they, they wish they were dead and that it just is so horrifying to be trapped in a body that just feels so sick and so awful all the time um it it's a it's it's often called like you know the walking dead or a living death and you know in the moderate you know like where i am right now which is sort of like the somewhere between moderate and severe so like i'm not all the way down at that end of the spectrum um but but when i am in that 
place, it that specter of death is with you constantly as something you can't reach. And it is so, and I think for anyone who has not experienced that, that sounds bad. That sounds like, how could you possibly want that? But if you're in the body, that it literally just feels like you are being tortured alive all day, every day, it's a, a pretty, I think, normal response to just want it to end. If it's not going to end because you're cured, to end in, in a different way. And that is an incredibly, incredibly common sentiment for people with ME-CFS, with very severe chronic pain, like CRPS. These are both nicknamed the suicide diseases. And that I understand that because that's... That's a place I've been in so many times, and you know, not in a not in a way where I've felt afraid for my own life. It's just sort of sitting right on the edge and the line, constantly knowing that you know you're not you're not going to cross it, which is, you know, that's better than I guess living in the fear that that you might. I deeply believe that this just this could be remedied by building the bridge of witness back to these patients because that is so much of the psychological torture is that no one believes you and your doctors are not offering you medical care and treatment and it's just so like to be very 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 sick is one thing to be very 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 sick and nobody is offering a hand of support or kindness or belief or bringing over a casserole or wearing a ribbon for you or marching for you let alone, you know, funding. That's like a distant dream. That, that is just so, 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 so compounding in terms of what it does to your, to your psyche and, and to your drive to stay alive because it really doesn't feel like it's worth anything. You don't feel worth, worth anything to other people. They're not treating you like you have worth and you're just in this body that's on fire. And so I think the combination of those things is really... It's scary. Part of the the work or results of the work to get people not to die is actually putting them in a position that you live in mm. all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's just radiate chemo, yeah. like take out huge parts of your body, you know, like organs, everything that needs to be removed where you don't actually die. And then that's what's left is this being sometimes that to avoid death, they've put themselves in a position where their their quality of life is like Almost completely nothing. leveled. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then of course, anyone that comes along and says, well, that's just how I'm, that's my life now. And, but no death threat, maybe. Uh, it's the, the dismissive, it's like built into it almost because our system is set up to be like, well, at least we're keeping you alive. If we keep you alive, mm-hmm. then cool. Who's the next for the, like, who's the next person for the bed? Like, yeah. you know, move them out and, and bring in the next like person that's actually, you know, in trouble. And um, boy. Whew. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't need to be this way. I mean, there's just, to, no. to my mind, I mean, there's just like, of course, doctors need to, doctors always say to me, they're like, well, but you go into the profession with such, you know, high hopes and you want to take care of people and you kind of get the empathy drummed out of you. And this is back to a point you made earlier of, of you know, something I said in the book of that I really think that doctors, they have their own psychological things that 
they really need to contend with. And I think that having the empathy drummed out of you is one of them because you should not, Mm. you can't let that happen to you. That to me is like becoming a lawyer, but like losing your ability to argue (laughs) or like becoming an accountant, but being like, well, I'm not very good at math. And it's like, you just, you can't, being a doctor, being able to care is it just has to be one of the skills that is developed as part of the training. And mm-hmm. it, it, all of my friends who have become doctors, they're like, well, that's a very noble sentiment, but that's just often not, not really possible. And I, I just, I don't, I don't accept that. I, I just feel like we wouldn't allow for a critical skill in any other industry to just fall by the wayside. And the idea that it's not a critical skill is, is ludicrous. It's it's really, really important in this profession of all professions to have that ability to care. And I feel like, okay, if we're not going to do that, if, if what doctors are saying is that we really can't do it, it's not our fault because the insurance companies have squeezed us. Okay, right, the system. Yeah. Right, the system. Well, then you have to really fight to at least expand the system so that there are other jobs within the system where somebody is providing oh, yeah. care. Up and the goddamn system. Yeah, you know? because I mean, like, it's like nurses how often can't do we need it. to learn that this isn't working or it doesn't work in so many ways? Exactly, and it gets and like you talk about. Yeah, it gets offloaded onto nurses. Like, oh, they'll be the caring, mm-hmm. empathetic ones. We're just going to pay them way, way less, mm-hmm. work them to the bone, and expect them to be the ones to hold your hand. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, wow, wow, wow. This is, I mean, I talk about that a lot in the book of like yeah. the traditionally feminine uh, qualities like care, empathy, et cetera. Like, regardless of what you think about gender, like those qualities, whether they're in a man or a woman, are delegitimized in everyone and it's a huge problem because they really those qualities matter and they matter for i think the there's so much data to to back this up they matter for the health outcomes like if you're somebody that's just you know a data-based person it's like well but the data says that health outcomes are so much better when the doctor you know establishes like a warm uh, good relationship, supportive relationship with their patient. So. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you, Sarah, and thanks for your story in this book. And I'm I'm so glad you're alive <laughs> and you're you're here. And we need you. You uh, know, we need you to be. People need you. People need to hear this. And uh, it was I needed to. <laughs> so, um, really, I really, really mean that. Hope uh, you get that. Thank you. Uh, I'm. I feel, you know, I, I, you know, we were talking about like the disappointment of the book release and like, I feel like it's like all been washed away. This is like such a healing interview. I really mm. appreciate that. You're a great witness. Mm. <laughs> and I, and, and like I said, like this, this podcast is performing the function of mm. the, the heroine and the healer and the witness and like going down into into grief and into sorrow and into the mud and into the muck not to just like wallow around in there but because like there's healing there and because it's important and it's so important to hold that space and to make that space sacred because it is and so so i i appreciate you back and i'm really glad you you asked me to come on
podcast producer nick jane are you there yes ned hi oh thank god (laughs) i'm here it's okay um so this is another nice episode for you right yeah i was thinking uh, how i met uh sarah and over a decade ago i was recording an album where I was recording all my own songs, but getting different women to sing the vocals. And through a friend, uh, they recommended Sarah as a singer. And I remember writing to her and she was like, I'd love to do it, but I just can't. Like I, (laughs) and she didn't even explain. She was like, I just, I just have this health thing and I just can't. And then years ago, years later, I was traveling through Arizona and I got in touch with her and asked if she could do a house show together. And she was like, I don't ever play, but okay, let's do it. Oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> and she put on this house show and she lit a million candles. Um, and she had this beautiful, uh, like, like uh, you know, Arizona, like, uh, what do they call it? Casita kind of house with like tile floors and stuff. And she got these two women to sing with her and they sang uh, this song, you know, one of those house shows where everybody's quiet. There's a million candles. And they sing this acapella version of go to sleep a little baby it was so beautiful and everybody's just quiet and the song finishes and there's just this like you know when everybody's like holding on to the silence and then somebody came late to the show and they walked in and they had that uh nervous feeling of like oh i better go sit down and they stepped and they kicked like a dozen candles <laughs> and they all <laughs> smashed <laughs> and where <laughs> everybody's afraid everything's gonna catch on fire and it was just oh like, was yeah just like, that was I, I was I knew there'd be something bad coming, but I'm glad that was it because I was like, and then the house burnt down at the end of the night. 
Yeah, I also expect you to say that she just repeatedly said no, like mainly or knowing of her was from her just over and over again, not being able to do it. And based on yeah. what we know now and what the listener knows now, yeah, it would make sense. Well, and then she described to me her story. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I got to read the book and I told you when I was reading it, it was like so many times in that book, I can't believe she didn't die. Like I would have, <laughs> if it was just a story about somebody else, I would have been like, okay, this is where they die. But I'm like, I almost what? feel like that was how you framed it too, Nick. You were like, <laughs> she's got to die next. And you know her, she's your friend, but you're like, she's definitely dying after this, right? You know that she absolutely isn't. And that normally that would remove the tension from a story, but somehow, you know, knowing that the person definitely isn't dead, um, somehow it still made more tension. I'm just like, wait, I know we're like five years. We got like five years in the story to go. <laughs> like, how does she survive? Well, thank you for introducing us and real grateful for getting to do the interview with her. Yeah, it's perfect what she said at the end of, of this podcast can be that witnessing that so many people who know that experience of chronic illness and dis disbelief from doctors and that 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 you offer that just your your kind of default. I don't know if it's a default mode, but your your active uh you're going to die mode is this witnessing that's not it's not like judging it's not like thumbs up <laughs> thumbs down it's just like yeah you know and that what she was talking about is so important and so i'm happy that 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 we can offer a platform for that yeah i think it's nice because it affirms something that i know we believe in and you remind me then how the podcast is and can be an extension of what we created our events at the open mics and the curated shows that, and also, and also in prison and with the hospice patients, but it is that I'm here as much to listen as I am to share. And, um, and maybe half of what needs to be happening is the listening. And so, yeah, I, I feel good and, and really grateful that she made a point of saying so, because after what we know she's been through, what a big deal to like give that to somebody. Um, yeah. But also like the listening, all of you listeners, like you just did that. That's a magical, sacred thing that occurred. It's not just I'm a person who uh, subscribes to a ton of podcasts, like especially in, in kind of the context of what you're going to die fosters. It's it's a pretty special, powerful uh, gift that that you're giving by listening to us and listening to her. So, yeah. so I like that you you remind me of that and that she yeah. did, too. Yeah. 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 And her saying that is like. Steph Curry saying, Hey, you got a pretty good jump shot, man. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I felt they that power. See it, it was like... potent. <laughs> yeah. I really felt that. And I think that's it. I did want to just talk real quick though and say like, how was it to hold my daughter's little noises? What was that like <laughs> working with that? Yeah. There's something about kids where they're basically like channeling, you know, and they're not they're not like writing or or creating as much as they're just like tapping into a radio station and just kind of humming along and so it's it, it's this level of of musicality that uh, in tune out of tune whatever it is like you could never get there as an adult because it's just so free and that's what's i think a lot of people respond to about it yeah i like that i'm glad that i have that too now it just is done and captured better than any home movie or thousands and thousands of photos to have that version of her at this age 
uh, held by your music is pretty special. So Mm -hmm. thanks. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're glad you're here. Bye-bye. to die the podcast is made possible with a grant from the peck foundation and listeners like you if you'd like to support the podcast and more of what you're going to die is up to in the world head over to www.yg2d.com and click donate